After the Jews returned from their Babylonian captivity, the destroyed temple of Solomon was rebuilt. It didn't have the same grandeur uh, as uh, Solomon's temple, but it was still an impressive structure. And when it was refurbished later on by King Herod, it became one of the outstanding structures of its day. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the day when the followers of Jesus, when they're coming out of the temple area, speak to him about the beauty of the temple, its walls and structure and so on. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and verse 1, it says this, And as he, that is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And wonderful they were, carefully placed by skilled masons to erase the natural illusion that the walls would fall on you if you stood at the base. Um, they were magnificent. Uh, they actually placed the stones in such a way that rather than creating that illusion when you got up close to the wall, it actually looked like it went away from you and went up higher. And it was all an illusion created by the masons. And in these great walls, of course, there were gates, wonderful gates, large, massive gates, which by the days of Jesus were covered in what was called Corinthian gold, which was actually a copper laced with gold and silver alloys, and it made them shimmer and glisten in the sunlight. The beautiful gate was the most magnificent of them all, we are told, and it required 20 men to push it open and closed. So you can just picture that in your mind. Uh, the, the gates um, may not have been quite as ornate in the days of Malachi, but you can picture that in your mind, these 20 men, while the songs are going from the Levites, pushing these massive doors open for the beginning of worship. Um, the Doors or gates that existed in the days of Malachi were about 500 years before Herod's temple. And though they probably weren't quite as ornate, they would have been massive and impressive and would have required the efforts of more than one man to move on their hinges. And I think it's easy for us to at least picture that part of it. You can think of a gate, maybe the size of uh, our pyramid back here or our triangle. And uh, if you could think of that as square and men pushing it open and uh, the people hearing the music and, and realizing that the day's worship and service in the temple was going to begin. Now, keeping this picture in mind, uh, I ask you to turn with me or look carefully at Malachi chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Now, Mr. Brillhart took us into chapter 2 last week. But uh, I wanted to go back and cover this scene because it's an important one uh, more carefully. And in Malachi chapter 1, in verse 10 11, the Lord speaks and he says this through his prophet. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Or from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Or you might read there, Gentiles. 
and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now the Lord is speaking through his prophet. And he cries out saying here, Oh, that there were even one among you who would shut the double door of the gate. If there were only one among you. And when we hear that said, the question naturally comes, well, why would the Lord say such a thing? Why would he cry out for someone, anyone, to shut the doors to his temple? And the answer, I think, is quite simple in the context. Because the priests and the people were offering to the Lord what was, in God's eyes, despicable. And they were offering it in a way which mocked him. And they were offering it with a cold and sinful heart. And what the Lord was looking for was just one man or one woman who would look on the, on the willful and tragic situation and say, No, enough. You'll not do this in the house of God. You will not disgrace his name in this manner and push the door shut so that the people couldn't get in, the worship couldn't go on as it was going on. One who would just shut the gate and say, better no sacrifice than these shameful offerings which you're trying to bring. And you see in the text that God explains this. He says, someone shut the door that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. That you might not do this thing. That you might not treat me this way. One who would do it for naught. Um, a sacrifice that would be brought without cost or, or was really any kind of real sacrifice at all and wasn't given with any sincerity. That would come to an end if you, someone would just shut the door rather than have going on what's going on. And I think it's worth noting that the Lord is not always looking for his people to act in what might be called a positive way. At times, he requires a negative response. And I think we're seeing that here. The problem is, as one points, uh, puts it, that there was no zeal to vindicate the purity of God's house among either the priests or the people. No zeal to vindicate or honor the house of the Lord. As we've already seen, they were in the habit of showing more respect and fear for their governor than for their God. And the situation is aggravated by the fact that no one seems to care. That's where the problem is here. The Lord's bringing up. No one seems to care about this. Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the other reformers have been criticized at times for overreacting to the deplorable situation in the church in their day. But... They were men responding to the call of the Lord to shut the door 
against what was vain and superstitious, what was contrary to God's word and to his grace. But it was even more fundamental than that. The church was teaching that the vain and lame works of men and women were the sacrifices that God sought for his people, from his people, for their salvation, rather than acknowledging the pure, unspotted lamb who was sent to be, by God, the sacrifice for sins. They'd even gone so so far as to suggest that the Lord God would accept coins in trade for souls, cold metals in exchange for souls, things dug out of the earth by men and stamped with their picture in exchange for souls, rather than the Redeemer, rather than the Lamb of God. The men and women of the Reformation stood up, as it were, and shut the doors and said, No, it is Christ alone who saves by faith and grace alone. But in the days of Malachi, there was no one who would go and shut the door. No one who would say no to the thoughtless and the willful and the self-serving worship that was taking place at the cost of the glory of God and truly the welfare of their own souls and the souls of others. No one would come forward and take a stand. Now, last time we considered the character and sincerity of our worship, and that continues to come into play here. As T.V. Moore puts it, the Lord is saying that it's better to be quiet than to offer some lame and weak offering that insults him and only adds to one's guilt by trying to palm it off in your conscience as pleasing to God. He's saying that that happens sometimes. People offer lame, weak worship, and they are trying to palm it off in the face of God as as pleasing to him, even though it's not from the heart, even though it's not with sincerity, even though it's not the best that they can give or in the best way that they can serve, they try to palm it off to ease their conscience. Well, at least we did this, or at least I did that, or at least met the minimum standard. Then as now, men sought, says Moore, a cheap religion, one that would ensure uh, ensure heaven to them on the easiest terms. Hence, they made a shuffling compromise with duty, compounding for or resulting in the lowest possible percentage of self-denial and effort. I love the way he puts that. They were doing this in such a way that it would require the least possible of them. And that's what they were offering to the Lord. And that's what the Lord is saying. If there was just one, it would stand up and shut the doors against that kind of service to me and to my house. And all the while, this half-hearted effort was treated by the people and by the priests as though it was sincerely 
and honestly what God required of them. The ceremony went on just as if this was the right kind of sacrifice, just as if it was being brought with the right sort of heart. The, the, everyone was turning a blind eye to the fact that they were bringing lame and blind lambs to be sacrificed, diseased lambs, lambs that were of no worth to them. They, they were turning a blind eye to the fact that the people were bringing them, and they were pretending just like it was the sacrifice that God called for. And they would sit down and eat and celebrate and rejoice just as though it was what God asked. Of course, it wasn't. And it's that that the Lord is referring to here. We're warned against this attitude in worship ourselves by passages like Hebrews 12 and verse 28. There we read this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And, then, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Here's a call for us in the context of our times to be thoughtful about the worship that we bring. It has to be acceptable worship. That is, it has to be in Christ and Christ alone. And as that worship is offered in Christ, there is a spirit of reverence and awe that we have this privilege of coming to the living God that we have this privilege of serving him in his house and among one another. And to do it with a sense of desire to show forth the glory of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 14 through 19, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. We have before us this morning the elements that show, show forth the sacrifice of that precious lamb who offered himself without spot. And it's in under the, that sacrifice that we come and offer our worship to the Lord. And it ought to be with a spirit of reverence and awe. Now, the Lord goes on here in Malachi, and verse 10, he says, understand, <laughs> I wish there was someone who would close the doors. Understand this, though, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Since the days of Saul, the Lord had uh, made these matters very clear concerning sacrifice. He said by his prophet Samuel to King Saul, who was of a similar spirit as these people, he said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. We see the way the Lord looks upon those sacrifices that are brought, but are brought weakly or lamely or out of accord with his word, uh, without being under Christ and, and being humbly brought under him. They're considered rebellion and presumption. And that rebellion is like the sin of divination. And that presumption is like idolatry in his eyes. And so the Lord is rejecting it among them, and he always has rejected those sorts of offerings. The Lord tells them very plainly here, I have no delight or pleasure in you, and I will not accept it from your hand, or that is, what he's literally saying here is, I will not count it against your debt. Go ahead and bring that sacrifice, but I will not count it against your debt. And so it's as though you had offered no sacrifice at all. Men, women, and children often labor under the delusion that God has to accept what they bring to him, no matter how lame or how foolish it is. And that expectation is often based on emotions or on how they value the offering in their own minds. They assume that if uh, they are impressed, God is equally impressed. They think, well, this is my offering. I've brought it. I've come up with this way of worshiping or serving. It's out of accord with your word, but it seems really neat to me. Therefore, it must be really neat in the eyes of God. And so that's the way they, they worship. Sinful heart is so self-focused that it can't either see or admit that, as Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We can't see that. And so we come in our own name and our own strength. There's nothing good without the chief good, said Augustine. And it's true. There's nothing good without Christ. For you in the present age, beloved, there's only one way in which what we offer to the Lord will please him and be acceptable. And that's for it to be offered sincerely and earnestly and really through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, we read, Through him, that is Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, returning to the days of Malachi, the people sadly thought they'd get away with serving God as cheaply as possible. But God makes it clear that it's not cheap at all because what they gained by what they did was exactly nothing. In fact, they lost ground. So they didn't save any money because they didn't get what they bargained for. They actually lost what they were bringing, their hopes and their expectations. And you know how that is. You maybe see something pictured online, and you think, boy, that's exactly what I need. And you go ahead and order it, and when it comes to the house, it's, you thought you were saving a little money and a little trouble by not going out and looking for it, but getting it online. 
but then it turns out to be not at all what you thought it was. It doesn't fit, or it's not the right color, or it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And what have you gained? Nothing. And that's what the Lord is saying here to these people. You've brought these lame sacrifices, and you think that, boy, I've gotten away with this cheaply. I've worshipped God, but I haven't had to do it with my best lamb. I was able to get away with bringing my worst lamb. And when I got to the house of God, the priest didn't turn me away and say, no, 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 you can't bring this offering because it's not fit. It's not according. They accepted it and said, yes, yes, that's fine. So I've gotten away with it. And the Lord's saying, you've gotten away with nothing. I have not accepted this at your hand, and I find no pleasure in you. So what you have sought by that cheap offering, you haven't gained. In fact, you've lost because it has made you even more sinful in my eyes. So you haven't gained. You've lost ground. To paraphrase John Trapp, their worship lacked contrition, or that is remorse. It lacked humility. It lacked faith in God and his word. It lacked hope. It lacked feeling. And it lacked fervency. They had no spirit of grace and supplication to compose their prayers. And they looked to no intercessor in heaven to to present and perfume their worship. No one would shut the doors against these insults against the Lord. So he simply says, I'll leave you and you will leave as you came. You've only cheated yourselves. You've only cheated yourselves because, now we go to verse 11, because or for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And though they might choose not to glorify and to honor God, he says, I will be glorified and honored. And the Lord's glory, beloved, does not depend upon the recognition of any creature. All creation owes to the Lord adoration and honor. But where it will not be given... It will be taken by him. And that's important for us to remember. Where it will not be given, he will take it. In his dealings with Israel, the Lord demonstrates his glory in two different ways. First, by his judgment of them for their sin. And by doing that, he says, I'm going to show my glory to the nations. Over in the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 39, in verse 21, the Lord says there, And I will set my glory among the nations, or among the Gentiles, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them, that is, on Israel. He's saying, when they come under their judgment for their sin, for this behavior, 
that's described here. It will be evident, and the nations will see that, and I will be glorified. And then he revealed his glory to Israel by his restoring them and by his showing them mercy and delivering them when they were scattered and without hope in the world. In Isaiah 46, verses 12 through 13, the Lord says there, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And what we can see here in these words of Malachi, when the Lord says, I am not accepting this at your hands, and I take no pleasure in you, but I'm telling you that I will be worshipped throughout the nations. That was a warning to the Jews of Jesus' day. And it comes really just before the long silence that descends on Israel for the next 400 years before the Messiah comes. You see how he speaks here in Isaiah. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. And it's plain and simple. Refuse to receive my word and to worship me by faith and trust, and you will be left in your sins. And we know that in the days of Christ, when the Messiah did come, the majority of the Jews rejected the Messiah and were determined to make their own way. And the Lord left them. And now his glory shines forth from sun to sun. It doesn't shine in his temple anymore, but it shines from sun to sun. In Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and 47, Paul, Paul and Barnabas are preaching in the name of Christ. And they say boldly this, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, talking to the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the nations. We are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth, from sun to sun. And all this day, beloved, since it first dawned in the Far East, prayers have gone up like incense. And men and women and children have confessed their reliance upon the one pure, satisfactory sacrifice, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that he made at Calvary to the glory of God. So the warning is going out early to be carried over into the days of Christ. You are not worshiping me. You are worshiping according to your own will and your own design. You need to look at the sacrifice I require. And the sacrifice I require is the one being offered by the Messiah. And when they rejected that, then that message went to the Gentiles. And ever since, the Lord has been worshipped and served, and incense has gone up in his name from generation to generation, from sun to sun, 
as the gospel has found root among God's people. Paul declared plainly in Romans chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, where we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. By doing this through the Lord Jesus Christ and having the gospel preached throughout the world, he assured that his name would be great among the nations and that he would be praised from son to son. In Isaiah chapter 66, another great prophecy is given in verses 18 through 22 of Isaiah 66. Here the Lord says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And to see the glory of the Lord, beloved, is nothing less than to enjoy that grace which he had bestowed on the Jews. For the special privilege of of that nation was that they beheld the glory of God and had tokens of his presence. He says that now the Gentiles who had not enjoyed these benefits shall see and enjoy them. And behold the glory of the Lord. For the Lord will reveal himself to all without exception, says Calvin. In verse 19 of that passage in Isaiah, we read, And I will set a sign among them, and that's the gospel, and the word which is the banner by which God's people are gathered. The word alone is the sign and the banner. This word is to be found only in the church, says Luther. And then go returning to Isaiah. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Paul describes himself in this way to the Romans. He said in Romans 15, 16, I am a minister of Christ, Jesus, to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified, by the Holy Spirit. He goes on in Isaiah and says, And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So this promise is here in Malachi First of all, there's the complaint that the Lord offers. 
Is there not even one who will shut the door? There is no one who will. So the Lord says, understand, I won't accept this at your hands, and I find no pleasure in you. But don't think that that means that I will not be glorified, because I will glorify myself among the nations. And throughout the nations, the gospel will go forth, and the blessings and the glory of God will be seen by men and women everywhere. Every island, every nation, every continent. We want to be careful when we see this exchange here between the Lord and his people, Israel. We want to be careful to mark the example of the Jews. In Romans chapter 11, verse 18, Paul says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches, the Jews. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. But fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In essence, what Paul is saying here is, if you see a shipwreck, look to your own sailing. That's what John Trapp, that's the way he puts it. If you see a shipwreck, look to your own sailing. What's the shipwreck we see here? People offering lame worship to God. What's the warning to us? This is not what we can afford to bring before the Lord. We're a land filled with churches, but too many of them have cast aside the one true offering for sin and have either denied the truth or the necessity or the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice altogether. And if not that, they're they're offering the lame 
and, and the blind while pretending to be offering the best. Beloved, we see this happening in our day. The light of the gospel winking out here and there. The truth of God compromised, despised, and displaced. And it wouldn't be any new or strange thing should the Lord quit this place and its unworthy professors and move on. I'm not talking about this place. I'm talking about this nation. Paraphrasing Trap again, he said, and if that happens, then farewell, America. Let us pray that that dismal day may never arise wherein it shall be said that the glory has departed from our beloved land. Let us determine to pray together, beloved, with specific purpose that the Lord would not take his glory from us, but always keep it before our eyes, and that then we would have the grace to see it and to glorify and serve him as those who see it, who truly see it, who understand what it is. That we'd no longer be willing to bring anything but the best of what we have and what we can bring. That we'd be careful not to try to bring anything to the service or to the worship of God except what is under Christ and in Christ. And that we would be careful to see that our hearts are engaged in the worship of the Lord. You see the shipwreck here. People were self-satisfied. People were at ease in Zion. They were willing to give less than what was required. They were willing to give less than what God was worthy of. And the result was the answer of the Lord. I find no pleasure in you, and I will not accept what you bring. And instead, I'm taking my glory and giving it to others. We don't want to see that happen. We pray it won't happen. But beloved, we have to be serious about this. We have to be thoughtful about this. We have to be praying about it for ourselves as individuals, for ourselves as a body of believers, for our church as a denomination, and beyond that, for the body of Christ here and around the world. And now is the time for us to be doing it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is shining in the face of Jesus Christ upon us this morning. Let us respond as people who see that glory and who rejoice in it and who give God thanks for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are weak, and Lord, I know that many of us can confess that we are too easily satisfied. We are at ease to a certain extent in Zion. We feel an uneasiness around us, 
but uh, not so much for ourselves. Father, please bring conviction upon our hearts. Please, Father, bring us to our knees as your people and let us be crying out and praying that the glory may not depart, but rather than depart, that it might shine brighter and more glorious in our eyes. That, Lord, we might be humbled. Lord, we might draw near in faith. And, Lord, we might give you the glory that's due to your glorious name. Help us, Lord. Father, remember that we're but dust. Pity us like a father pities his children. And make yourself known in our midst in uncommon ways. That in the glory of the Lord, we might serve in the name of Jesus Christ. And do it, Lord, lovingly, thoughtfully, and carefully. Grant us, Lord, this prayer of our hearts. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ.